Friends, I want to invite you now to turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1, which is where we're going to be this morning as we, as we work verse by verse through this really old letter written by one of Jesus' friends and followers to new Christians to try to help them understand what it means to follow Jesus. We've been talking verse by verse through chapter 1 of 1 Peter ever since the beginning of last month. And what we've seen so far is that this is a chapter that's all about hope. It's all about hope. That's where he begins his letter because everything else he wants to say from this point forward in the letter is rooted in hope, grounded on hope. Won't make sense for people without hope. To be a Christian is to be defined by hope. Now, he started with what hope it is that sets Christians apart, what makes their hope secure, why they need it so badly. And now, in the part we looked at last week and now this week, he's turned to describing how hope affects our lives. He's talking about very practical commands that come from hope. If you're hopeful, then do this. He's explaining to us what difference shows up in our lives when hope defines who we are and how we relate to the world. Last week, we talked about how hope makes us holy. And this week, with two more commands that he gives us, we see how hope makes us loving. There's really one simple idea that I want to make sure we come away with this morning. Really simple, but very helpfully pressed into us through the things that Peter says. The simple idea that we want to come away with today is that love is the natural posture of a hopeful person. If you're hopeful and your hope is in Christ, love is what what it looks like. Now, I want to talk you through how Peter explains that idea, but, but that's the idea. Love is the inevitable result of Christian hope. What I want to do this morning is just make sure you see first that that's what he's saying in these verses. Just the simple fact that he is claiming love flows from hope. We're going to look at that really quickly in the first couple of verses that I'm going to read for you. And then we're going to spend most of our time simply chewing on why it is, how it is that love flows from hope. He's making this connection. When you're hopeful, you're loving. We want to understand how that works. Why is it so necessary that hope drives us to love. That's what we're going to do this morning. I want to begin by reading a few verses for you from 1 Peter chapter 1 and the very first part of chapter 2. And as I read, I'm going to ask you to stand with me as a way of honoring God's word as we read from 1 Peter chapter 1 starting in verse 22. And then I'm going to, I'm going to read all the way through verse 3 of chapter 2. This is God's word to us this morning. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. 
This is God's word. You can be seated. Like I mentioned a moment ago, I just want to start by making sure it's clear that Peter is setting out a very basic claim that we all need to understand this morning. That claim is that love flows from hope. When you have hope, the hope he's been talking about for the whole first chapter, you will love one another. Cause and effect. These first verses, the first two that I read, verse 22 and verse 23, they center on one simple command that you'll find all over the New Testament. It is the key mark of a Christian. It's the sum of all Christian ethics, and it's the best indicator that our hearts have been captured by the good news. Love one another. That's what it is. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, before we get further into how Peter presses this command, I want to just make sure you see from these two verses how it is that this command is flowing from hope. He's connecting the command to love to the hope that's been his subject from the beginning of the chapter. The key points that show us that's what he's doing come on either end of the command to love. At 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 the center of these verses is this command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Before that command comes, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, that's claim number one, or, or, or support number one, rather. And then right after the command to love one another, he comes with, since you've been born again, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed, the living and abiding word of God. One command with two supports. Somebody described it as two pillars from which a single lamp is hung. You know, imagine like an old-timey lamp hung by a chain from two supporting pillars. You've got the command, that's the lamp, love one another. And on either side of it, holding it up, giving it its stability, You've got two things that he wants us to notice, and both of them point us to the fact that hope makes us loving. I'm going to show you where that, come, where that comes from. The background reading I've done this week has helped me to see that both of these phrases, the phrase that says, having purified your souls by obedience, and the phrase that says, since you've been born again by the living and abiding word of God, both of those phrases refer to the same event, the same thing from two different angles. The thing they refer to is becoming a Christian. That simple. They're both references to somebody becoming a Christian, taking on Jesus and the hope that's in him as their own identity. The first one being uh, purifying your souls through obedience to the truth. I think when I first read that, it sounded like he was talking about basically getting your life in order so that you're worthy of whatever it is that God offers you. Step one is go ahead and become perfect then after you got that covered, you can move on into whatever it is that God has given you as a reason for your hope. But that isn't actually what he means. This obedience to the truth phrase is, a, is one way that the New Testament refers to becoming a Christian, conversion, a decision to repent and believe. When the good news has been preached in Acts, for example, where a lot of the first Christian sermons are, it comes with the to-do at the end. That to-do isn't, okay, now fix your life, then you can have everything I just told you about. The simple to-do is, Believe it and repent. So stop following who you were following. Say no to all those feudal ways inherited from your forefathers in in Peter's language. Say yes to the way that Jesus has put in front of you. Repentance and faith are how we obey the truth that is the gospel. So when he says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, he's saying having set apart your life to this gospel, placing all of your faith in it. That's what he means. When you've done that, when you've placed your faith in what's been offered to you through Jesus, love one another. The second phrase, that second support holding up this lamp, same idea, 
from a different perspective. So if the first idea is about our side to conversion, when we have faith in what Jesus has offered us, when we claim it for ourselves, when we repent and believe, we are purifying our souls for obedience to the, by obedience to the truth. When that, that's us. The second phrase on the other side of this command to love has to do with what God does in our becoming a Christian. We've been born again, begotten. We've been given new life. And not by something that will just wither and fade like the grass, but by an imperishable word, a living and abiding word. Now that word that he's talking about is the word of the gospel. The good news that's been preached to you, he says a little bit later. So what he's saying here is is talking about the same thing. When we become a Christian, this is what's happened. God has given us new life. We've been born again by this word. What he's saying is, when you have repented and believed, when God has given you new life, whoop, I'm not going to throw that over on you guys. When God has given you new life, when those two things have happened, love is the result. Love is an inevitable, basic, non-negotiable result of a person who has placed their hope in the gospel. Now, What I want you to notice so far before we get into how Peter builds this out is that this is a claim about identity. It's a matter of fact. It's not really that aspiration. It's like you should want to be like this. He's just saying you will be. Like, this is a command that comes out of something that's already happened. One way to put it would have been having purified your souls by obedience to the truth and having been born again by this living and abiding word of God, love one another. This is what happens, cause and effect. That's why he's using words like sincere and earnest and pure heart. It comes from within. It's not just from an external pressure, from peer pressure or from new self-discipline, some structures you put in place around to help you. It's it's internal. It's like a new motor that you got. It's going to work itself out like this. It comes from within because it's a kind of family resemblance. When you're born again, you look like your father and God is love. I recently read a really interesting book on Christian identity by a theologian named Brian Rosner. The book was called Known by God. And there was this one section in this book where he was talking about how important experience is to who you are. Like, but all of us, part of our identity is shaped by things we've been through. And that our identity is also shaped by behavior. And a lot of times what we've been through shapes our behavior. And the, the way he built this out was he said, we in our identity and our sense of who we are and how we relate to the world, we have what, are, what he calls defining moments things that happen that make this huge mark on you and that with those defining moments come what he calls signature moves things that you do new instincts and behaviors that come out of these defining moments that you've had his example resonated with me a lot his example was was the generation of folks who lived through the depression so my grandparents were children during the depression they did not outgrow the effects of the depression on their lives it was a defining moment for them the kinds of want that they experienced and that they watched around them. And it gave them a set of signature moves that they live with the rest of their lives. I got scolded anytime I didn't drink down to the last drop the cereal milk. Anytime we had bones or scraps of meat left over from a, a dinner, a roast beef or something, we would give it to the dogs because somebody's going to eat that meat. You know, we're not going to throw that away. It, it was in them as a set of instincts. They didn't have to think about it. It was just how they acted in the world. A defining moment for them became the signature move. I think what Peter is telling us here and what's, what's backed up in the rest of the New Testament is that for Christians, we have a new defining moment, the death and resurrection of Jesus. It tells us who we are. We are those so beloved by God 
that he gave up his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him won't be punished for their sins, but instead be given life, life that Jesus deserves. That is our new defining moment. And his resurrection is our hope that one day, because of him, we'll live with him. And that defining moment comes with a signature move. The signature move of those who are defined by Jesus' death and resurrection and the love of their father that shows up in that moment is love. Love for one another. We have been moved as Christians from death to life. From a fatherlessness in the world, the feudal ways inherited from forefathers where we will only get as much as we pay for to an adoption into God's family that gives us and promises us security and peace and plenty forever. We've moved from condemned sinner to justified and worthy saint. And when you've been loved like this, you love others. When you put your faith through obedience to the truth in this hope, the living and abiding word of God that gave you life, you love one another from a pure heart. So far, only trying to say one simple thing. Love flows from hope. When you have this hope as your defining moment, love is the signature move. I want to spend the rest of our time showing you how Peter fleshes out this very simple idea. When you have hope in Christ, you love. He fleshes that out from verse 24 all the way through verse 3 of chapter 2. I want to show you what he does there because there's so much help to us. In, in pressing into this life he's called us to. How love flows from hope. That's what I want to spend the rest of our time on. Did you notice when we read earlier, verse 24 begins with the word for. That's a little cue to us that he's about to explain himself. He's about to give us the reason for what he's just told us. Love flows from hope. That's what he's just told us. Now he's going to explain why. He's going to give us the foundation for that claim. This for comes at the beginning of a quote from Isaiah chapter 40. This is given us as an explanation or a ground for what he's just said, explain why it's so important. So why does Isaiah 40, this quote here, support the call to love one another? That's what we need to figure out. What does this thing he's quoting to us from Isaiah have to say to us in our command to love one another? I want to show you what's going on in this quote, and then I want to show you the example he gives us to help us understand what he means. So this quote, verses 24 and 25, I just want to make sure you understand what it means on its own terms. And then I want to really spend some time on verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2, because there he gives us an example. Once you've gotten the point of this quote he gives us, this is what it will look like playing out in your life. So idea from verses 24 and 25 and an example to help us understand it in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 3. That's what I want to show you. Let's start with this quote. I want to make sure it's clear. I think it's about as clear as it could be, but I want to make sure that you get the imagery that Isaiah is trying to give us. The quote is this, a contrast between what's true about all human lives and what's true about God's word. All flesh is like grass, he says. It's glory. The best things about it, like the flowers of a field. The grass withers. That's what we know about grass. What happens to flowers? Those petals fall. That's what we know about flowers. That's what's true of all human life. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And you see what he's trying to do? He's telling us love flows from hope because all flesh is like grass and the word of the Lord remains forever. When you get that, you have hope that drives you to love. What's the point here? All of our lives, my life, your life, are like grass and its flowers. That means they're really good. They're beautiful even. I love grass. 
especially in my own yard when it looks good. And in the last two or three years, I've taken a little more interest in trying to help it along to look good. I rent an aerator. You know what that is? It's this machine that kind of pulls you all over the yard while it digs little holes up out of your grass to make sure lots of air is getting to the roots so that it can grow healthy. We sometimes water it, plant new seeds every fall just on time, sometimes fertilize it. And you know what? It looks awesome every spring. Around March or so, just in time for Easter, my yard looks great. It looks so good that when I cut it, you can even see little lines in it. You know what I mean? Like the back and forth lines that show it's just been cut. It's fresh and soft and vibrant and green. You know what my yard looks like right now? It's like a sandlot is what it looks like right now. It's brown. It's barely clinging to life. And the best, the most green things in it are weeds that I don't even want to be there. And that happens to me every single August. My wife loves to grow flowers. We had beautiful flowers this year. We had a huge bunch of cone flowers in our front yard in our, um, in our, in our little bed right next to the house. They were huge. I mean, they're just billowing. They keep seeding themselves. They get bigger and bigger and bigger. You know what they look like right now? They were once purple and white, and now they're just little seed pods in the center, no petals, needing to be cut and thrown away. Now, those flowers were beautiful. They were a gift from God to our family. We enjoyed them. We saw his beauty in them. But they don't last. You know, your life is that way too, friend. I mean, maybe you're young and at the very beginning and your future's full of possibility and hope. That is a gift from God that you should leverage for all it's worth. But your life isn't different from the life of my grass or these flowers. It's not gonna last forever. It's harder to see the younger you are. That's one reason I read biographies. Biographies are like time-lapse photography, you know? Or you get the whole thing in a short span. It starts with birth, and you get to see them living through a lot of the things you're living through. You see yourself and the experiences they have, but then you also get to watch them come to the end. You get to watch what age does, what time takes from them. I love to read biographies because they bring perspective on life. They point to the same reality that Isaiah points to here and that Peter's quoting for us. Those who've obeyed the truth, those who've been born again by the living and abiding word of God, they get Isaiah's point. They see that all flesh is grass and it's glory, the best things about it, like the flowers. That's what he's telling us here. The reason that hope leads to love is that people with hope get this. They know what's true about all life. But they also know that into this endless, seemingly endless cycle of life and death, something new has broken. A word has been spoken. A word with the same power that spoke and worlds came to be. The word that spoke into existence everything around us has, spoke, has come again from its same source. And that word that he's spoken now is a word of life and redemption and peace And it is a word that will not perish. While everything else fades, the word of the Lord, he says, remains forever. And that is the word that was preached to you. The living and abiding word that gave you birth. It begot you to begin with. That word is not like all the flesh that withers and falls. Those who love one another do so out of a hope that comes when they realize Isaiah was right. All flesh is just like the grass but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now that's the point of Isaiah's quote. The gift to us here in this passage is that 
Peter applies it with an example that helps us to see what difference it makes when you get this. And his example shows us just how closely connected this message is to our love for one another. That's what I want to do with the minutes I've got left. I want to make sure you see the example in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. He's going to show us here, having shown us Isaiah's quote, this is the hope that, that those who hope in Christ have latched onto. This is the view of the world that they've taken on as their own. Everything passing away except the word of God, which was your source of life. When, when that's what they've taken on as their own perspective, as their defining moment, here's how the signature move starts to show itself. Verses 1 to 3 in chapter 2. What will be the effect of us believing that all flesh is like grass and the word of the Lord remains forever? How does getting this truth support our love for one another? That's where we are. That's what we're asking. I want to give you two reasons. Two reasons that understanding that all flesh is like grass but the word of the Lord remains forever drives us in our love for one another. Leads to it necessarily and inevitably. Two reasons. Here's the first one. Comes out in verse one. The first reason that getting this truth about the world and about the hope that God has offered us drives us to love is that it starves out what drives us to promote or protect ourselves. Getting this about the world, that all flesh is just grass, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It starves out what in us drives us to promote ourselves and to protect ourselves. The things that undermine our love for one another, in other words. Let me show you what he's saying here. You see, he starts verse 1 in chapter 2 with so. He's drawing a conclusion. Because all flesh is like grass, but the word of the Lord remains forever, so put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy and slander. It's a conclusion he's drawing, and it's attitudes and behaviors we got to set aside if we realize that only one, thing's la- one thing lasts. Malice is wanting harm for other people instead of loving them. Deceit, and one particular variety of it, come next. Hypocrisy, trying to appear better than we are. We're trying to protect ourselves from others. Then there's envy that comes out in his list. Resenting what other people have, wishing it was us instead of them. There's slander, trying to chop others down to size. Can you, see the, can you see the theme here? All of them go together pretty well. The theme is treating other people as competition, seeing others as threats, as enemies. Now he's saying, if you realize that all flesh is like grass, but the word of the Lord remains forever, then, then set aside malice. It's ridiculous. Set aside envy or hypocrisy or deceit. Quit trying to pretend you're better than you are because you get that this is true. Uh, there's a book that I've quoted in here a couple of times. Sorry, guys, you're going to get another reference to this book, but it's really relevant. I promise, just, just trust me. There's a book that came out last year um, by some sociologists at Notre Dame who I really like, and, uh, and they study religion in America and um, in different segments of the American population. And last year, they wrote, one, of the, one of the participants in this study wrote a book called The Happiness Effect on how um, uh, American college students are using social media and what effects it's having on their lives. Um, the, uh, the, the book was based on these extensive studies of college students all over the country, different kinds of schools, different geographic places, uh, areas, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different religious lines, and, a part, uh, and throughout all of it, throughout all of these interviews, across all those boundaries, one predominant theme came through in this research. 
in their use of social media, the kinds of things that normally grab headlines like predatory behavior, cyberbullying, even people being driven to suicide were actually not common problems in the interview, based on the interviews that she, that she conducted. A much more significant and subtle problem that came through in, across all these boundaries is, quote, the importance of appearing happy. She describes these students as de- who described social media's effect in their lives as something of a homework assignment. You just had to keep it going. You didn't necessarily want to, but you had this burden to carry. It creates this vicious cycle, she describes, as the happiness effect, this vicious cycle where, quote, because young people feel so pressured to post happy things on social media, most of what everyone sees on social media from their peers are happy things. As a result, they often feel inferior because they aren't actually happy all the time. It's this vicious cycle. All you see is happiness, but you don't feel happy, so you get the effect. It's not fun. Nobody likes this. They actually didn't enjoy it. But they felt trapped in it. And what this cycle does is feed deception, the kind of deception Peter's put on our radar here, the hypocrisy that he's put on our radar, pretending things are different than what they are. And what we put out there, this feeds deception. And what we receive and what we download from it, what she calls Facebook the CNN of envy, 24-7 coverage of all the happiest moments of everybody else's lives. And what does that do to me? You can see how this feeds exactly the list of things that Peter's telling us to put away. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, even slander. I don't know anybody who enjoys living like that. I know you don't. To whatever extent this sounds like your experience, I know you're not happy with it. But can you see what a difference it would make to accept that all flesh, including mine, including yours, is like the grass and the best things about you and the best things about me are like the flowers of the field? Can you see the difference that that would make? A couple years ago, I was driving somewhere with my son, and my oldest son, and he asked me what my grandfather's father's name was, and I didn't know. I couldn't tell him. I'd forgotten. I'm sure I must have known at one point. I but I don't remember now. Even, now. even now, standing here before you, having prepared to give you this anecdote, I, don't, I couldn't tell you what it is. I think about that. I will be forgotten by my own descendants in a hundred years. They will forget how many likes that post got. They will forget how my appearance lined up against yours. They will forget whatever comes of anything I do. My own descendants will forget it. Because all flesh is like the grass and its glory is like the flower of the field. So what are we doing? Seriously? Envy? Envy what? The more we seek this kind of glory, the glory that flowers have in the field, the longer we're chasing bad money with good. But that's just the bad news. That's only a prequel to the good news, friends. Can you see what a difference it would make to our malice, our envy, our deceit, our hypocrisy if we realize that the word of the Lord remains forever? And it's a word of hope. It's a promise of life. It's something that gives us life we experience now and that promises us life to come that we can't even imagine yet. And it's, it's limitless in its supply. 
And that means that it can be mine. And at exactly the same time, friends, it can be yours. This beautiful, life-giving word can be yours and mine at the same time. So what malice? What envy? Why should I protect myself in what you think about me? Where does hypocrisy make sense in light of the fact that all flesh is the grass, but the word of the Lord remains? Can you see what he's doing? He's drawing a conclusion for us. When you get this hope, then the thing that kills your attempts to love one another goes away. It's completely undermined. And then he takes it one step further. That's the first thing from this example that we can see. When you get this hope that everything else is passing away, but the word of the Lord is not, it remains forever, then it'll starve out the thing that keeps you from loving one another. This self-protection, self-promotion that holds you back from loving one another gets starved. The other thing that happens when you realize that all flesh is like the grass and its glory is like the flower of the field, but the word of the Lord remains, the other thing that happens is that this knowledge, this hope, feeds what drives us to pour ourselves out for one another. It feeds in us the very motive that leads to love. The central command of this passage, and some would say of this whole book, some commentators say the whole book, the central command of it is in verse 2 of chapter 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Do you notice, as, as one writer put it, instead of, instead of giving us this catalog of things we're supposed to do away with and then giving us a catalog of things we're supposed to put on, instead of saying, put off malice, envy, hypocrisy, put on, you fill in the blank. He doesn't give us a catalog of virtues. He tells us just one thing. As you're putting off all these other things, instead of those things, crave spiritual milk. And all else will flow from that. The spiritual milk that you crave will be the source, the fountainhead for the streams of love throughout your life. That's what he's telling us. And what he means here is not, uh, not the same way that another New Testament writer uses milk. You know, in a letter to Hebrews, some of you may be thinking about that, that, that uh, he, he's, he's, he's getting on to the people he's writing to saying, you just want milk all the time. You should be grown up enough to where you can handle meat. Peter's using it the same metaphor, but in a different way. He, he's not talking about immature entry-level information here that you should graduate from. He's talking about, his, his connection is more about what, an, what milk is to an infant, God's word should be to you. What milk is to an infant, God's word should be to you. Like a newborn infant, you should love and long for this pure spiritual milk. That's an image that lands. You know what a newborn is like when it's hungry. Newborns live with a single-minded craving. They are totally absorbed in their quest for milk. It is their single passion of life. They are not, not one of them, marked by a variety of well-rounded interests, a series of hobbies or ways to pass the time. They are not well-adjusted human beings. They're obsessive, consumed, helpless slaves of one all-consuming desire, milk, period. Now, at first, they don't even love your face yet. You're just a source of milk to them. They just want to eat. If they're not eating, they're asleep. When our youngest was still a baby, uh, me and my older two boys, we liked to imagine what he was dreaming about when he was asleep, and we imagined him dreaming about milk in all sorts of crazy contexts, you know, like 
splash parks with fountains of milk or oceans of milk with crashing waves you could boogie board on or his nightmares being of milk droughts, you know, this, this milk supply being cut off. That's what we imagine him dreaming of because it's funny because, because it's true. His whole life was, was milk. And, and what Peter's saying is that when you recognize everything else is passing away, all those other things that might divide your heart, that might turn your head, they're all just like the glory of the flowers. When you realize that, you crave anything that will last. You want something substantive. And in the word of God, that is exactly what you receive, something that lasts forever. A word of promise and hope that's imperishable and inextinguishable. The gospel preached to you. What you get and the reason you crave it is a promise that even though my name will be forgotten by my own descendants in 80 years' time, my name is written on his hands. He knows me. He loves me. He died and rose for me. So even though this flesh isn't much to look at in its prime and is heading downhill fast, I have a name that won't be forgotten. Now, when you recognize the truth about the world, you crave that. I want to be told that over and over and over. I want to find it everywhere I look in the scriptures. I want all my friends reminding me about it, especially when I'm tempted to forget it. There's nothing else, friends. It's Jesus, and he is everything, or it's us and our deaths, and we're nothing. There's your choices. And Peter is telling us, this word has given you life. So love one another. I mean, good grief. Why not? When you've been loved like this by Jesus, how could you not love one another? What he's telling us is that when you see the truth, then you crave this news, and that as you feed on this news, your hope deepens, and that as your hope deepens, you start to love, because love flows from hope. Are you having trouble loving somebody? Let me restate that. Why don't you go ahead and think about who it is you're struggling to love? Because we've all got them. I want you to think of that person. You got them in mind? What is it that's holding you back from loving them? I won't pretend to know what those circumstances are. I'm sure they're unique circumstances. But I believe that Peter is pointing us here to one factor that always matters in your struggle to love somebody. How clear is your view of your hope? How strong is your taste of God's kindness to you? Have you tasted that he's good? Your love won't flow from discipline alone, as important as that can be. What you need, friends, if you're struggling to love, what you need is hope. Earlier this year, to speak of recycled material, I, um, we were talking about love in First John, a letter that's all about it. We're talking about how Jesus' love for us leads us to love one another. Same idea that Peter's talking about here. One image I use for how this works in 1 John, I think it's behind Peter's message here too, comes again from my yard. We've got two sets of hydrangeas in our yard. One of them is in full sun all day and it's big and bellowing, lots of leaves, lots of flowers, beautiful. The other set of them are behind this huge, beautiful maple tree that completely cuts out the sun. That one is shrimpy. It's small, about the size it was when we first planted it. It hasn't really grown that much. What we said then, what I'll say again here, is that if you're struggling to love somebody, then whatever else might be going on, however unique those circumstances might be, I'll tell you something that's going on for sure. 
your vision of God's love for you in Christ has been obstructed somehow. You need to clear the way for that sun to shine because when that sun shines on your heart, when you see that hope for what it is, then love is just what happens. It happens because of his power at work in you, the living and abiding word that never doesn't do its work. So focus on Jesus and see what happens. Crave that milk. Consume that milk and see what happens. Father, I pray that you would do this work that's been described to us so well in this letter. I pray that you would help us to want it and to be as eager as we can be about consuming this news and that you would make us a community of people who are always talking about it with each other. I pray that our groups that start up soon would be groups built around this spiritual milk, this news preached to us, this living and abiding word of God that offers hope and peace to anyone who will take it. And I pray that you would, in our church, create a culture of people who crave together what is good and offer it to anyone who will listen. We pray that you do this work by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.